0: I'm always seeing things on the news and thinking that can't be right, can it? Listen to the KYW News Radio In-Depth podcast and make it make sense. KYW News Radio original podcasts. All right, Brian, I know you've been trying to buy a house for a while. So, uh, how's that going? It is ongoing, Jay. <laughs> it is an ongoing painfully
1: frustrating process and there's just so much that we my family have thought about during this time everything that goes into it we've learned a lot I think we're so much better prepared now than when we started this process months ago but it's also made us think deeper about things particularly that neighborhood issue is like what type of neighborhood do we want do we like speaks to us and then even deeper than that how did neighborhoods end up looking like this what the future of some neighborhoods and how certain populations of people have all come together?
2: Well, sometimes it's more about how certain populations of people were put together throughout history. In fact, Raquel Williams has been looking into how housing looks different in different neighborhoods in Philadelphia and particularly how race comes into play. And what she heard from people like Teresa Singleton at the Federal Reserve is, well, sadly might not be surprising. It's definitely disheartening.
3: Owner-occupied homes in Black neighborhoods are undervalued by as much as $48,000 per unit, and that reflects about $156 billion in lost wealth um, for those homeowners. And so really trying to understand what are the factors um, contributing to um, the devaluation of Black homeowners is is, is going to be a critical, critical uh, part of not only individual wealth building, but community wealth.
0: I'm Jay Scott-Smith.
2: I'm Sabrina boyd Circa.
0: I'm Brian Seltzer. And we'll talk with Raquel Williams about those racial disparities in homeownership coming up a little bit later on. But first, Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, is officially buying Twitter for an astronomical 44 billion dollars. Billion with a billion billion dollars.
2: So just a casual $44 billion, right. you know. You I, know I, I he's got that to blow on I, a whole social media network. You know, I got
0: it. Just, you know, a little forty-four billion dollars, just throw it down and buy the bird app.
2: I can't even fathom that kind of money. And we actually asked some of our KYW listeners on Facebook what they would do with $44 billion. The general agreement tends to be. Not by Twitter. Uh, (laughs) You know, you've got David Scott saying he would help American veterans or the mentally ill or the homeless or the elderly. Kathy Barnt says she'd pay off her family's homes and debt, which is, you know, definitely a good a good start. Help a whole lot of people, says Dana Emel uh, that, you know, it's good to know that our listeners have a have a good heart and are saying they would go and help people before buying a social media network.
1: I would set up a table in a big parking lot, let's say down at the sports complex, and I would say, "Anyone who's in possession of a firearm in Philadelphia, come on down here and I'm going to give you a big fat wad of cash. Give me your gun, I'll take it off the street." <laughs> Start your own and as long as you don't purchase, program. yeah, as long as you don't purchase more weapons that can harm people, <laughs> take this big fat wad of cash and let's try and clean the city up.
2: There are just so many things about this that both fascinate and terrify me in some ways. I have a lot of questions, so let's turn to Tim Jimenez, who's been out seeking some expert opinions on this. Tim, you spoke with Victor Picard, who is a professor of media policy at Penn. What did he think about this sale?
4: Well, Sabrina, there is uh, concern uh, from the professor. Uh, You know, he brought up the idea that there just could be this free-for-all on the platform.
5: What we should be concerned about is that the online harms that we're all well aware of, whether we're talking about hate speech or dangerous misinformation about things such as voting or vaccines, or just online harassment. Um, These are all things that, however, imperfectly, Twitter does try to moderate. And if we're to take Elon Musk at his word, that he doesn't believe in these kinds of, uh, you know, content moderation policies, then we could see this kind of, you know, free for all. And that's not a healthy environment for any of us. Uh, So these
4: are legitimate concerns that uh, that the professor brought up. And that's something that uh, other groups and organizations have brought up as well.
0: And we do worry about things like doxing being another issue there as well. You brought this up that Elon Musk calls himself a, quote, free speech absolutist. And oftentimes when people flee to the whole idea of free speech, they bring up the First Amendment. So almost as a reminder, does the First Amendment actually protect your right to say
4: anything you want on a place like Twitter? Uh, well, Jay, you know, the First Amendment has to do with protecting our rights against the government telling us what we can or can't say. Uh, again, that's the government. Uh, Twitter, now and when Elon Musk does officially own it, if that does indeed happen, Twitter is privately owned, whether it's shareholders or in this case, it would be a single individual. Uh, the company can regulate what you can or cannot post. The First Amendment is separate from that. So, uh, the idea of free free speech and when it comes to a private company, you know, that's that's it's different than uh, the government and, and what we understand to be the, the First Amendment.
2: What might scare me the most about this whole thing is just knowing that there are people in this world who are so rich that they can just say, I don't like how this company is running business or I don't like how this product works and just buy it and take over. So Victor Picard actually suggested that maybe we shouldn't have billionaires owning our media platforms. Maybe we, the public, should be the ones who own them.
5: Should we have our our information infrastructures owned and controlled by billionaires, which much of our media system already is, whether we're talking about Jeff Bezos or Rupert Murdoch or Mark Zuckerberg. Um, But I think it does beg this question, That perhaps we, if we should have billionaires at all, should they be owning and controlling our information and media infrastructures? And so I think we could start asking crazy questions like maybe this should be democratized. Maybe we should own and control our social media platforms.
2: Now, obviously, that's not what's happening with Twitter right now. And I don't think it's going to go in that direction anytime soon. But I think it's also worth noting when you talk about public versus private, Twitter, this would be Twitter going private Going with Elon private. Musk owning it because it was, you know, owned by shareholders before. So there's a there's a significant difference there.
4: Right, exactly. Instead and then Musk would not have to answer to shareholders. Currently he is right. he is a majority shareholder and he has uh, most say and and other shareholders have have some opinion of course, but uh, yes, uh, he doesn't have to answer to shareholders. It's just uh, pretty much what he would decide.
0: Now, we've talked about the misinformation and disinformation and and hate speech that could all kind of start running wild again on this. What are other concerns that Victor has with this
4: Elon Musk takeover of Twitter? Well, you know, Twitter doesn't really have as many followers as Facebook. And because of that, it only brings a fraction of the profits. But really, Twitter has an outsized influence on on politics in particular especially of course former president trump had a a huge twitter following and decisions were made it it felt like uh, based on tweets and things like that and of course the outrage that followed after those tweets and now that former president is banned on twitter right Uh, so with that outsized influence uh, you know what does that mean in terms of let's say how would twitter shape the public discourse going forward if it is completely privately owned like this. That's something, of course, we would find out if that does indeed happen. Elon Musk himself has 85 million followers. So he himself, uh, you know, uh, shapes conversations uh, and, and a single tweet from him uh, could spark. Who knows? Of course, we've seen <laughs> single tweets from him in the business world with that spark. So we'll see.
0: His company once lost like billions of dollars in net worth because of a tweet that he put out, like Tesla took a big hit because of the things he says there are. There can be some serious consequences about this. And, Tim, I'll, I'll ask you an honest question. Have you thought about leaving Twitter now that Elon Musk is set to take this thing over? Or are you going to stick on the Bird app for a little
4: while longer? <laughs> I'll stick on it. You know, we'll see how long this goes. But, I, you know, I, I it, because there is still uncertainty, what exactly will come of this? Uh, and, you know, this is just Elon Musk talking, and he, is, he says a lot of things. Uh, he, he, he's been erratic through the years in terms of the messaging. So, you know, we'll see what happens from this. I'll stay on Twitter for now. It is a good source of uh, for us in journalism of getting information. You know, you see someone tweet something and then you go from there. Is that factual that was put out there? We'll check up on that. So as a news source, it's important still in terms of a starting point. Uh, So I'll stick with it as long as possible. You know, of course, uh, maybe I just block out a lot of the hate. uh, And and that's what what we're doing right now uh, as much as possible. And uh, it's, you know, i I bring up the Sixers I think every time we talk Jay but it's <laughs> playoff time and I need a place to to let in to let some emotions <laughs> out I guess his name
0: is Tim J radio on Twitter by the way that's Tim Jimenez a reporter here at KYW news radio Tim thank you so much for coming on with us on this Tuesday great to talk to you now yesterday was the eighth birthday for Dulce Alavez, and if you don't know who that is she's a young girl from South Jersey who's been missing for almost three years now KYW's Nina Barati was out at Bridgeton City Park where Dulce was last seen and where her family and supporters gathered on Monday night to celebrate her birthday.
5: Today she turns eight years old, and this is the third birthday without her. Noema Elevez joined family and friends to celebrate her daughter's eighth birthday, a Moana theme with a cake, balloons, and song. Happy birthday! The party fit for 8-year-old Dulce Alavez, whose case is still being investigated by the Cumberland County Prosecutor's Office. Her name is still alive and people still know that she's still missing. Investigators say they're holding out hope that she's alive. Although not much information on the investigation has been released, volunteers like Brenda Trinidad continue to organize events like this.
2: It's to always keep her name alive. That's why we keep on celebrating. Family and supporters and investigators, as you just heard, there are still holding out hope that there is a chance to find Dulce, so we're hoping that there's a positive turn to this in the end.
0: At least some form of resolution for this, because the young lady just disappeared out of a park three years ago. So hopefully, at some point, there will be some answers to what happened to Dulce Alavis.
1: Well, there was the story out of California earlier in the month: um, Connor Jack Oswald, teenager with autism, who was found after having gone missing for three years. So stories like that can give you hope in an otherwise really difficult
0: situation. So after this quick break, we're going to speak with KYW's community impact reporter, as well as the host of Bridging Philly, Raquel Williams. She's going to talk about the racial disparities in homeownership here in the city of Philadelphia, how they trace back through history, and where people of color who are looking to buy a home can actually turn for help. We'll be back with that in a minute. I'm Jay. I'm Sabrina. I'm Brian. And we know that America has a history of discrimination when it comes to housing. But it can be hard to explain how things such as redlining from the past still have lingering effects today. But there's also a significant gap. Black applicants are still three times more likely to be denied by mortgage lenders than white applicants. It's a staggering statistic and a really disappointing one, Jay.
1: And guys, one thing that's come up is, my family and I, we've been searching for our home, is this notion of writing a letter to the home seller. And for people out there who have purchased homes, maybe you've done this, we did it for our first house, is writing a letter to the seller to try and pull on the heartstrings, make an emotional appeal to get them to sell you the house. But within realtor circles, what I've learned is that, Realtors aren't really advising people to write letters anymore. You certainly can do it because if you were to include a picture or a photo in your letter, that's then something that the seller of the home can add in as far as their judgment. They might look at a photo, see something they like, or perhaps more concerning, don't like, and then make the decision on who they're going to sell
0: the house to, what offer they're going to accept, unfortunately, based on that. And Brian, you're right. And these things are deep. They're historic and systemic. So to help us kind of get to the root of this whole problem, we're welcoming in Raquel Williams, the host of Bridging Philly, as well as KYW News Radio's Community Impact Reporter. Raquel, how significant is the gap in homeownership between the black and white populations?
3: Uh, I'd say it's pretty significant. We're talking about forty-seven percent of Black families in Philadelphia actually own their homes, and that's compared with fifty-nine uh, percent of White families in Philadelphia that own their homes. And 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 that's that's pretty significant, I would say.
2: Raquel, I've rented my whole life, and I've been kind of talking about buying a house. But with this market, I've kind of started to consider whether I should just keep renting. Am I just going to rent forever? You know, I don't know. Maybe that wouldn't be so bad. But what is the significance of owning a home? Obviously, there's value to it, both financial and emotional, right?
3: Absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with renting. Um, You know, there are different situations for different people right now. If renting is for you, of course, renting is for you. In a perfect society, there's a nice balance of renters. And homeowners. As far as homeownership is concerned, you know, it's the great American dream. You've got the slice of the pie, so to speak. Um, and that is where generational wealth is often, you know, generated for the most part. You can borrow against your home, you can finance uh college loans, you can do so many different things, and then you have a home that you can pass down uh, to your kids. And there, in fact, is that generational wealth. So it has a lot of significant value to it emotionally. Of course, just knowing that they, you have a space, a little slice of the pie that belongs to you and only you, um, you know, that's pretty significant. And, you know, um, studies have shown that in areas where people own their home, you know, they are more involved in uh, in society, more involved in their neighborhoods, their block captains, they're on the PTA, so on and so forth. They're more involved and they have more of a stake in their communities. And, you know, if more people own their homes, we could probably see uh, a better quality of life in some areas where it's not so much like that.
2: And you talked to a homeowner, Dwayne Fair, who kinda advocated for this and talked about why it was so important for
3: him to own his home. Can you tell us a bit of his story? Oh yeah. He's great. He's a great, great guy. And it's interesting because he's been living he'd been living in his home in North Philadelphia for oh, just about all of his life. And his mom, before she died, and she died in the home, she told him, don't let this house go. Don't let this house go. So, you know, a couple of years went by and he started to think about it. And he said, man, I I have to do something. He never once thought about credit. He never really thought about owning a home. So when he started to look at it uh, and going through the uh, Philadelphia um, Housing Authority and started to get into these programs.
5: That was my biggest help. He was telling us how, you know, Like your credit score. I never even thought about my credit score. Now my credit score is an eight-something. Mr. Charles Barnett, he was telling us how to save money, how to budget money, and me and him became brothers. And
3: if you speak to him, the man is just so proud and happy that he has something to
5: pass down. To know that any of my family can walk in that door with nobody questioning, it's ours.
3: And it's really what it's all about putting your name on something and and, and and starting that generational wealth.
0: Raquel, there are so many elements that go into buying a home. I'm also someone who's never bought a home. I've been a serial renter my whole life too. But the process of buying a home includes getting approved for the mortgage to getting your offer accepted to coming up with the down payment and mm-hmm. all the closing costs. That's a lot of money involved. Plus, as you just mentioned there, credit being a thing, and that's an issue for a lot of people. Where in the process is the problem? What is the holdup? Where are the gaps? Maybe the biggest there are so factor. Many gaps.
3: Yeah, absolutely. There's so many gaps. And I have to say, it, it, you know, even for the person or people who, you know, have good credit, uh, have a down payment and, and they're ready to go. It is a mind blowing process. My husband and I went through it 18 years ago. And when I tell you it just sucks the energy right out of you because it's just so much you don't know, you're you're in uncharted waters. But we had the guidance of, you know, parents and family members and people that we know that already went through the process that can help, you know, helped us, you know, walk us through it. Um, as far as the gaps, the gaps start right in the beginning. Low income, low credit. Uh, and we talk about denials in, in credit applications and applications for mortgages. Um, we're talking about 29 to 30 percent of denials in black applicants and also debt to income also accounts for a slightly higher proportion of applicant denials for, for black applicants as well. So there are snares, there are you know trips, there are different things along the way uh, for people who don't understand and may not even uh, you know, have that, uh, the credit and, and the money to, to go forward with this. It's just even more of, uh, of a problem. And we're finding out that a lot of it is once again, systemic.
0: And speaking of systemic, that brings us to redlining. Can you kind of go into what redlining is and how that factors into all of this?
3: Basically, neighborhoods with blight, um, with high crime or neglect, they weren't able to be insured. Um, Mortgages were not easily to obtain in those areas. So they were told they were called red zones. And those red zones also, and I don't know what significance you'd like to put to that, but it also had... People of so-called um, undesirables, if you want to say, um, yeah, uh, people of color, people of Jewish ancestry and um, ancestry, um, unfortunately, are all kind of put into that whole uh, red zone thing. And that's where, you know, a lot of the people of color and people of Jewish ancestry were. The green zones, the green areas were families, uh, homes owned by white families. And though the Fair Housing Act uh, uh, supposedly did away with that, you've got years and years of (laughs) hundreds, you know, tons and lots of years of damage already done in those areas. And so the problem kind of still exists today.
0: We can't talk about this without also talking about another word, gentrification, where we see homes being knocked down and replaced with new developments left and right. That is definitely a thing, but up and down the East Coast, particularly here in the city of Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. and a lot of those are in black and brown neighborhoods. How are developers or real estate agents kind of getting them to sell those homes?
3: Let me tell you what's been going on. Um, that uh, <laughs> you've heard of the cash for home situations, right? They had to on the, on of, the telephone
0: poles or the we buy the we buy old homes or we whatever.
3: We buy old homes. Well, what's been happening is that a lot of the gentrified neighborhoods um they've been barraged with these cash for home offers. And so you have people coming in saying, listen here's the cash. We'll buy your home right now. And we're talking about people who are already low income, um, who may be looking for an out, who may be looking for some quick cash and not realizing that they're giving up so much value, but they're hitting them with it and they have the cash ready and they're developing these homes and they're flipping them and turning them around and selling them for so much more. And there you have the gentrification happening. I spoke with Kia Gee. She is with the Fair Housing Commission and she shed a lot of light on housing discrimination. And of course. Redlining and gentrification. What we are hearing is that the gentrifying neighborhoods are being um, hit with a barrage of unlawful, unethical, harassing attempts for homeowners to sell their homes significantly undervalued. It's unfortunate because it, it is systemic and it's hitting, you know, black families hard.
2: One more thing that I noted in, in your stories that I hadn't really thought about is public housing great resource for people who need help getting a place to live but people who live in public housing often think that they can pass it down and it's not that is not the same as owning your home so there's a little bit of a sort of perception gap there i guess
3: yeah and and this is what you know kelvin jeremiah he's president of the philadelphia housing authority he's trying to drive this home uh, to people who live in a public housing you know, public housing is really meant for you to help you while you're trying to get on your feet, while you're trying to, you know, get things better. It's not for generational family pass down and pass on, although that's kind of what's happening, but you don't have any wealth in that. Um, you don't own it, it it's not yours. Um, and so there is this misconception of you, well, I have this rent-controlled place here. I'm gonna let my daughter have it, and then her she's gonna bring her kids up, and then so on and so forth. Nobody is generating any wealth that way. You don't own anything. And honestly, the you know, the housing authority can tell you, listen, this is not what this is about, let us help you. Get into something else. And they do have some great programs at the Philadelphia Housing Authority to help people uh, get into home ownership or at least prepare them to start on their journey to home ownership.
0: So, what can someone do, particularly black and brown people, if we want to buy a home, but you're struggling either in terms of credit or in terms of money or just like what resources are available to help people buy their own home?
3: So I did speak with Kelvin Jeremiah. He is president of the Philadelphia Housing Authority and they have lots of programs that can help people on the road to home ownership.
1: We have a great program that allows you to transfer your the payment that we would make on to your landlord, we will actually make that directly to pay your mortgage. You can actually build wealth while being on the program.
3: In Philadelphia, I would definitely reach out to the PHA and find out about all these different home buying programs. There are first time home buyer programs. Uh, You can get an FHA loan. There are so many different um, uh, programs available for people who want to do it. Now, of course, you can be evaluated, look at your credit, look at your debt to income, and you can start to pay down on that. I know I had to do that in the beginning. I had to pay down on all this debt that I didn't realize that was affecting things. It kind of brings up your credit. And uh, you can start at least getting the the ball in motion, getting the wheels in motion, fixing your credit and, um, you know, not biting off too much than you can chew, staying within uh, kind of what you can afford. Um, there are programs out there. First time buying home pro- uh, um, uh, programs are great. And like I said, FHA loans are always available for people who are just getting started and may not have a lot of income as well.
0: Thank you so much for joining us as we had to kind of get a little bit of a history lesson in there when it comes to yeah. dealing with housing here in the city of Philadelphia and really across the country, too.
3: Absolutely. Anytime.
0: So you can follow Raquel Williams, the community impact reporter and the host of Bridging Philly on Twitter at Raquel on air. That's it for this Tuesday. I'm Jay Scott Smith.
2: I'm Sabrina boyd Circa.
0: I'm Brian Seltzer. And this week is not just the final week of April, it's also the final week of Ramadan. And we're going to learn more about the Muslim tradition tomorrow. We'll hear about a partnership between a mosque and a Catholic church in Center City, Philadelphia, and a Ramadan food drive that Phil Abundance is also running. So come back for that tomorrow. And in the meantime, have a great Tuesday. We'll help you get over the hump on Wednesday.